from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. And welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Uh, today is Thursday, 18th of July, 2013. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I not do me a favor, favor. let me in here. And we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the base with a tape. It's crazy because while I was listening to the intro this time, I suddenly realized that I don't know that I've ever like shouted out which artists are in that intro bit. Um, the first part of it is there's a voice synthesizer. If you do like AT&T voice as a internet search, you'll find they have a website where you can type stuff in and then it'll have a robot speak it for you. So the, from the United States of global hegemony, that's that sound bit. Uh, and then the DOC is on that. He, y'all ready for this is at the very start of his first album. And then, um, in fact, the sounds that not only pound but please your eardrum, that comes from Rakim. And then the part about they say they want to learn, well, I'm going to teach them, um, it comes from the DOC as well. But um, th- there was, I'm saying I'm um, a lot, I know. Okay, so uh, the last the last part of that intro is from this uh, CD. It's a collection of um, important audio news events throughout history, you know, the first reporting of the Titanic and then uh, the, the Hindenburg and all the rest of it. So uh, there, the introduction is done by this guy with this very deep voice. And he says things about, uh, you know, those words come on and they're so powerful. Uh, we interrupt this broadcast and that's the name of the collection. We interrupt this broadcast, something like that. Anyway, uh, this week, I shouldn't say week cause it's not every week, but this time on the syncast, I'm actually going to do something a little different. Usually I go through current events and economics and education and hip hop and lots of other stuff, but I'm actually taking a, a, a turn. We're going to have a detour this week. I should stop saying week. Anyway, uh, the uh, yeah, I put I put out a book. I wrote a book, uh, and I'm I'm selling it. It's been published, and it's available for people to buy and to read and to hold. And it's awesome. I'm holding a copy of it right now in my hands, and it's a really euphoric thing. To the first time the proof came, you know, the proof copy. That was the first time I held it in my hands, and and it was it was a really awesome, exciting, thrilling, unreal, very surreal moment for me. Anyway, uh, it's been on sale for about a week, and we've sold a bunch of copies. Lots of people are eager to get, sort of, you know, get their hands on it, and I'm very happy because of that. It's a really, not only is it great to know that people are supportive just in general, but it's it's awesome to see them being so interested in something that I love, a particular book, and knowing that it's something that I wrote. That's that's even cooler. Um, a lot of the stuff in this book, if you don't know, has it been published in various forms or other for the last few years, um, I, I've written a couple of these stories beforehand, and I mean, I wrote I wrote them all over a period of time. I never really had any intention of collecting them into a book, but um, you know, for instance, Respawn, I, I and a bunch of other stories, I've I've printed up into sort of you know handouts that that I can photocopy easily and just hand to people and so on and so forth. And this has been very useful for you know showing some of these stories to my students. But the other thing is. 
there were other stories I wanted to write as well. So what I did was I just sat down and started figuring out, okay, which stories would I want to include and so on and so forth. I won't bore you the whole story, but suffice it to say that it happened as smoothly as I hoped and it's so exciting. So I use this self-publishing format called CreateSpace, which is a subsidiary of Amazon.com. And I hate Amazon.com because of what they're doing to local you know, bookstores and stuff. But on the other hand, CreateSpace really is a, a, a very, very good platform for making a book in. So they have templates and they're, they're, the margins are all set up. And they have this cover template. You just download it and you create on top of it. And the process I found to be very simple. Now, if you don't know anything about what you're doing in terms of page layout or design or, or stuff like that, it might be intimidating. Now, they're trying to make it easier because there's an online thing where you can... Um, you, you, you can create a cover online. I don't know exactly how that works. I, hadn't, I didn't even play with it. I wanted to have total control, and I knew it would be limited on the website. But be that as it may, uh, I'm pretty pleased with the product, uh, having the copies. It, they came about four days earlier than they said they would, and that was awesome. And, you know, the process is a little cold and distant because I don't think I ever talked to a human at CreateSpace in the process of all of this. But it, it the finished product is good. I'm happy with the results. And it's just, like I say, so exciting. And, okay, so here's the thing. Look, a lot of times when you say you self-publish, people are going to start asking the question like, which is a fair question, like, why didn't you just get it published by a publisher? And the assumption to that, the assumptive answer to that question is, well, you know, it probably isn't good enough to get published. Well, I have no idea if these stories are good enough to be published by a publisher, for you know, per se. But to be honest, I've been writing a lot and I've been, I haven't really tried very hard to get stuff published for various reasons, which I won't bore you with, but I would like to get published by a real bona fide publisher, right? So, you know, I've sent novels, I sent a novel out this summer. <laughs> I'm waiting to hear back from this agency in Madison. But the point is that I, I, for this book, I, did, I didn't even want to deal with it. I didn't want to, I wanted to have total control. I, I, I started playing around with the formatting and it, it just seems so easy and, you know, one of the first things you do when you go into CreateSpace, because I just sort of wanted to get a sense of how it worked, they say you have to create a project, which will then be your book. Okay, here's your ISBN number, they say. Oh, my God, suddenly I had an ISBN number. And that was so, that number, <laughs> and I will read it for you, one four nine zero five one seven seven eight two, And I had mnemonics memorized for that, uh, 49ers and then 1 and 0, but I can't remember what order they go in. <laughs> so, anyway. Tell us more about ISBN numbers. Oh, it's so fascinating, Duke. Anyway, um, the book. Yeah, so you're probably interested in the actual book itself. Well, it's a collection of stories. There's 37 in all. Uh, a lot of those happen at the end uh, in a section known as the Fiction Journal, and I'll tell you about that now. So it's the so so it's 37 stories, and um, there a lot of those come at the end in a section called the Fiction Journal. To understand the way I write these days and what I write, it has it's important that you know about my day job as a teacher. Every day in my in my classroom, most of the classes, uh, we start with journal writing, and I give them two topics on the board. One of them is fiction, and one of them is nonfiction. So the fiction topic might be um, it was a dark and stormy night, dot dot dot, and then they they're supposed to keep writing that story. Yeah, or I'll give them some characters, or I'll give them the first line of a story. You know, Bobby jumped into the ocean and it felt weird, or whatever it is. So, and then I tell them to sort of go nuts, you know, they feel like writing fiction, make up a fun story, you know, go crazy. And some students do that. Most don't. Uh, there are relatively few fiction writers, but I have a year's worth of topics, well, a semester anyway. And so they, I use them all the time because there are going to be some students there who um, 
most students do not choose the fiction topic uh, for various reasons, but there are a few who do. And I, I remember when I was in school, I thought I loved creative writing and I wanted to do it more, but no teacher ever really made it part of the curriculum. You know, once in a while we'd have a day where we did a story or something, and I loved those days. But I wanted something on a more regular basis, especially because I read Natalie Goldberg's book, Writing Down the Bones, very early on in my writing life. And she said that, you know, regular practice, a little bit each day, uh, was very important to get better. And it's so true. But um, I think that the preference for sort of academic writing uh, came out in most of the teachers that I worked with in high school. So whatever. I try to make it a little different when I can. And some days we don't have time for journal writing and whatever it is. Uh, and I recognize that the, the conversations, because we write and then we talk about it. And a lot of times the nonfiction topics, which are you know, what's your favorite movie and why, or what are your favorite foods, or whatever it is. Sometimes those conversations go on a little long, yeah? But those conversations are often really important for us to establish, you know, rapport as a class and, and their interpersonal skills of talking. And even when I call on them, it's not like I'm punishing them. I'm not trying to shine a spotlight on them. I just want them to be part of the community. And it gets a little weird to talk about that stuff in high school. Yeah, you know, you're part of community, but it's still true. It's this weird balancing act with high schoolers because they all, they're convinced that they're adults and they know everything they need to know. And so trying to, you know, establish, trying to get them to do things they don't want to do is, is tough in the first place. But, you know, especially like when there are people who feel, some people feel like we should do the journal writing and talk about it all day. And some people feel like we shouldn't even bother with it at all. So there's, there's extremes there, whatever. My point is that I'm writing during this time too. Uh, so not every day, but as much as I can, because I think it's important for myself to get better at writing, and I just love doing it. So um, uh, I've taken 31 of the of the pieces from that fiction journal, um, and there's some about video games and 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 this uh, vampire zombie attack that's actually fake, and the Grand Canyon was filled with tapioca pudding. So I'll read a couple of those at the end of the show. Um, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about the contents of the book for people who are interested in it, and. Um, yeah, the, the, I won't talk too much about the process because I know that's boring. Um, so the, the first part of the book, before we get to the fiction journal, there are one, two, three, four, five, six stories. Um, I could have done the math, 37 in all, 31 in the fiction journal, but I'm, I don't do math. So, uh, imposition, so chronologically speaking, imposition is the oldest one. I wrote it when I was still in Gainesville, so there's easily before the year uh, you know, 2000. And it's, it's a dialogue just between two people. And they're talking about all sorts of stuff, you know, metaphysics and, and where our sense of right and wrong comes from and when is violence justified. And, you know, then throughout it all is this question about the nature of the divine. And it's not as though one of them is a strict atheist and one is a strict, you know, non-atheist spiritualist, but they are, you know, it's basically, you know, it's don't tell anybody, it's two sides of my opinion about this stuff. And they're trying to sort of, you know, it's like air hockey and they're shooting the puck back and forth and, and they're both very good at defense. So it's not as anybody ever really wins, but it's the action of shooting the idea back and forth, trying to create synthesis and antithesis, or sorry, create thesis and antithesis. And then hopefully a synthesis will arise that you can then interrogate to the next level. So whatever, there's a movie called the sunset unlimited, uh, which is based on a, I think play by Cormac McCarthy, who is a great writer. He wrote blood Meridian and no country for old men and the road. And Cormac McCarthy's a great writer, but I really disagree with what the outcome of uh, the Sunset Limited. It's the Sunset Limited is also a dialogue between two characters in the movie. They're played by Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones, and they give great performances. It's definitely worth watching. Uh, and there's a lot of important food for thought in that story, in the same way that you get good food for thought in My Dinner with Andre. But the Sunset Limited seems to express a pretty despairing view that 
so Samuel L. Jackson represents this sort of like very faithful person who really wants to, uh, you know, save everybody with prayer and this and that. He basically believes we can be redeemed, that human nature is basically good. And Tommy Lee Jones has the attitude of, no, we, we you know, I think he says something about uh, if there ever was hope for humanity, it was extinguished in those ovens at Dachau or whatever it is. So, and that's that's a very powerful point, but I think in the same way that we, it's not fair to take someone who's done, committed murder, for instance, Sister Helen Prejean talks about this in her books and her work on uh, the death penalty in this country. If we, if it's, if it's wrong to take the worst thing someone's done and make that all of who that person is, then so too is it wrong to say that about humanity. It's not fair. And this is the same thing I wrote on my 4th of July post on the blog. It's it's not it's not fair, and it, I only really come to understand how to again synthesize these two concepts. It's not fair to only look at the good parts of America or only look at the evil parts of America. You have to look at both of them, and that is the way we reconcile ourselves with. And it's true about individuals. It's true about uh, nations. It's true about cultures. It's true about you know schools and institutions like families. But it's true also about the larger question of humanity. So. Part of my, and I wrote this way before I saw the Sunset Limited, but I was surprised by how similar the two discussions were. So, anyway, I'm as good as Cormac McCarthy. That's what I'm saying in position. No, but it's the earliest one I wrote. And for that reason, uh, the Duchess, who did a beautiful copy edit, thank you so much, Duchess. She did a great job. I can't thank her enough. Um, there are some, she found a lot of typos in that section because it had been a long time since I looked at it. Uh, and there are a lot of things that I feel are a little. They're a little less refined than the position that I now hold, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the other thing I realized is that I wrote this in 2000, and there's this section in here that I was surprised when I reread it because of how similar it is to the Trayvon Martin case. So on page 189, if you'd like to read along in your copy, uh, the they're talking about the nature of violence and... Um, one of them says that, you know, Shakespeare's right, there's no one more worried head than the one that wears the crown. And then the other person says, except that nowadays there's not much power in the crown. And person A, uh, sure, so the Queen of England isn't worried about folks trying to take the throne. Instead, she's got the same worries as the non-royal rich people, CEOs in the upper 1%. Dude, I use upper 1% in like 2000. Um, Carl, but I got it from George Carlin, so I can't claim anything. Car alarms, home security systems, gated communities, walled off even. There's nothing they fear more than someone coming to take their stuff. And the scary thing is that this leads them to support policies that leave innocent people dead. Let's say a black man is found walking around in one of these communities at night. The police approach him, and for some reason he doesn't immediately lie down. They shoot him because they assume immediately that he's there to swipe their merchandise. And the police are acquitted because the mandate from the people in charge is clear. None of those people, quote-unquote, are allowed in this part of town without a gardener's uniform. This paranoid fantasy of members of the underclass coming to loot and pillage is the driving force behind city planning and architecture these days. So... Again, when I was rereading that, I thought, wow, that's very, you know, replace police with George Zimmerman, and, and that's that's almost exactly what happened. Um, so I, I, I say that mostly because I think it's a remarkable coincidence, and also because this is the first show I've done since the George Zimmerman verdict came out. And I, I of course, like everybody else, am angry and sad that he was acquitted. I'm not surprised, I suppose, because the law, as a number of people have pointed out, the law is is so stupid. It's so ridiculous. And the saddest part of it all is that the majority of people in Florida apparently still like the 
hold your ground law, despite the fact that it led directly to Trayvon Martin's death. And that's really angering, angering and sad to see my home state doing something so stupid. But you know what? There's stupid laws in every country, every state of the country, and, and probably every country. Now, it's horrible when, it, when those stupid laws result in people's deaths. That's a special kind of frustration and sadness. There's no doubt about that. But we should also remember that there are other laws. There are other government policies which increase, the, which, which help allow more people to die. And those government policies are inconscionable. There's, they're, they're just atrocious. Okay, I'm getting off topic. Back to the book. Um, so imposition was first chronologically. Um, KR services. I probably started. I may have started that even before imposition or at, soon afterwards. Um, I saw Wanted and I hated it. The movie Wanted. It's so stupid. And the, the I, I actually wrote KR services LLC in response to Wanted because Wanted. The notion is, you know, we kill one person, we save a hundred. And there's a fatal flaw in that logic. And I, I wrote KR services to try to dig into that flaw. So the the thing that Tyrone deals with in uh, KR services is actually um, it's it's the it's the it's the same thing I thought when I saw Wanted and so now and I, I actually only started a long time ago and then I left it in some folder and I was looking through my folders to see if there was anything else I was missing to put in the book and I found the the beginning of KR services and I was like oh I remember this story this is gonna be awesome so I sat down and one day just finished it and uh, yeah it's I'm pretty happy with it so actually I want to read the first two sections of it uh, when he Tyrone first meets Brinkman so uh, if you'll allow me. What are you going to do? Turn it off? I dare you. Page 119. So this is KR Service's uh, first two paragraphs. Oh, and the epigraph, the little quote that comes before it. And this is for Jim Dom, um, because he is a great teacher and I love him. Uh, Who was in position? I dedicated each of the stories to a different person in my life who's really important. And, you know, I didn't really dedicate the whole book, because whatever. But, um... It would be to my mom and dad because they're so awesome and I love them very much. And uh, yeah, I miss my dad a lot. And yeah, okay, anyway. So, uh, care of services, right. Uh, Tyrone took a... De- oh, no, sorry, the epigraph. <laughs> the epigraph is from a CIA manual that was leaked. It was published around 1954. Quote, No assassination instruction should ever be written or recorded. Ideally, only one person will be involved. Assassinations can seldom be employed with a clear conscience. Persons who are morally squeamish should not attempt it. Tyrone took a deep breath as he set the scope into position. Three hundred yards, he guessed. The guy was looking around, nervous, jittery. The flag dipped into view twice, and Tyrone flexed his finger over the trigger. The guy's uniform was stained. Probably ate too fast, or maybe he threw up before the fighting started. Tyrone waited one more second and fired the shot just as his cell phone rang. He grabbed the phone and scowled at the number. 202 area code. Where was that? He pushed the green button and nestled the phone against his shoulder as he returned to the game. Hello? Hi, is this Tyrone Woodburn? Some white guy. Sounded around 40. Yeah. He saw another guy in the scope and started lining up a shot. Mr. Woodburn, my name is Earl Brinkman from KR Services. Have I caught you at a bad time? Tyrone rolled his eyes. Sorry, man, he said. Whatever you're selling, I don't want. Actually, Mr. Woodburn, the man cut in. I've got a job opportunity I'd like to discuss with you. He hesitated. What kind of job? I understand you're planning to join the Marines after you graduate. Is that correct? He scowled again and quit out of the game. He hesitated. How do you know what I'm planning to do when I graduate? I'm afraid I can't go into the details over the phone. Why don't you come by our office after school tomorrow? Why can't you just tell me? Mr. Woodburn, this isn't an ordinary job offer, and it comes with some significant opportunities for advancement. I think it will interest you. Just come down and meet with me. If you decide... Okay, hang on. 
You turn an envelope over and clicked a pen open. What's your, wh where's your office? Brinkman was tall and diesel, with a blue button-down shirt and a firm handshake. Thanks for coming in, he said, as he gestured to one of two chairs facing his desk. A big window looked out on downtown. They were high up. Tyrone sat back, one hand on his knee. Yeah, well, it's not every day some business guy calls me up with a job offer. Brinkman smiled and pulled a file folder out of his desk. He put it down and leaned forward. You play basketball, Mr. Woodburn. He put a hand up. What, because I'm black? You assume? Brinkman sighed and opened the folder. Two years at Farwell Middle School, one year at Kettering High. He looked up, right? Tyrone looked at the file but couldn't see much. How do you know so much about me? Brinkman tilted his head. You know how colleges watch basketball players to see who's got potential? Yeah, scouts. Brinkman nodded. Right, well, they start pretty early. Yeah, like in middle school. Elementary sometimes. Tyrone spread his hands, then stopped. This isn't about basketball, is it? Brinkman smiled. No. But you've been... He hesitated and scrunched up one eye. Scouting? Me? He looked down at the file again. Uh, recently you took the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Exam. He flipped a page. Did pretty well. Tyrone nodded and glanced around. I did all right. Brinkman flipped more pages in the file. You ran track for two years. Doing well in your classes. No trouble with the law. You're smart. He flipped another page and smiled at Tyrone. But not too smart. When do you get to the part about where you explain why you've been stalking me? Brinkman closed the file, folded his hands, and tilted his head. This job opportunity brings with it a significant compensation package. Now, obviously, we don't make this kind of offer to just anybody. We need to know some things about the people we approach. How long have you been doing this? Quite a while, he said. Fortunately, like most young people, you're very generous with the details on social networking websites. And elsewhere. Tyrone raised an eyebrow. What do you mean elsewhere? Before you took the ASVAB, you did some online test prep work. You remember that? He nodded. Well, one of the sample tests you took was from us. You provided a good deal of information there. He sat back. And we've also been monitoring your online gaming skill set. Tyrone scowled. What? Oh, sure. The military is using console controllers to fly drone aircraft. We watch reaction times, impulse control. There's a lot of crossover there. Did you ever see a movie called The Last Starfighter? No, sorry, but what does your company do, Mr. Brinkman? He smiled. We're a private defense contractor. What does that mean? The U.S. military has certain ways of doing things, certain rules it has to follow. When the government needs something done and doesn't have time for standard procedures, they come to us. He hesitated. Think black ops, but with a guy like me giving the orders instead of the president. I don't know, man. The Marine recruiter said I could get money for college. Brinkman smiled again and leaned forward. Trust me, Mr. Woodburn. After one term of service with our company, you could pay for everyone in your family to attend the college of their choice. Tyrone gazed out the window, then sideways at Brinkman. So what would I be doing? I'll bet you'll never be able to guess what he does when he joins KR Services LLC. Um, all right, so other stories in here are Lost Track, which is the one about electronic music and um, chewing tobacco. And there's a part at the end I want to read real quick because it's just, I really loved it. I love the way it came out. And, and I should say that both Lost Track and one of the items in the fiction journal came about from the same prompt. Um, I wrote, and it's the first one in the fiction journal because it's my favorite, one of my favorites. I have a lot of favorites in that section. Um, so it's about, so the, the journal topic was um, write a story about someone digging through the trash. And when I wrote it the first time, I came up with a story called The Envelope, which is in the fiction section. And I really like the way it turns out. Um, it's all about this guy. It's so short. I'll just read it. 
Jake threw a fistful of candy wrappers onto the ground. Nino, our cat, pawed over to them and sniffed one timidly. Jake continued to chuck things out of the brown grocery bag that served as our wastebasket. From my seat on the couch, where I was watching the news, I could see random debris flying into the air. Where is it? Jake demanded, shooing Nino away. What are you looking for? I asked. There was no answer, so I asked again. What are you looking for? That catalog I got in the mail from that poster company, he said, exasperated, as if I should know psychically that, of course, he was looking for the poster catalog. Why, I said, I thought you didn't want any of those. I don't, he said, hurling some wadded tissues behind him. One of them landed in Nino's water bowl. She fired an icy glare at Jake. I think I put my paycheck in it and accidentally threw it out. Where is it? I gave that catalog to Susan, I said. He froze. What? Well, you said you didn't want it, so I let her have it. You've seen all those posters in her room? He dashed to the phone. What's her number? I told him. He dialed. Hello, Susan? He paused. Oh, is Susan there? Thanks. Another pause. On TV, Dan Rather spoke in a tired voice about the Florida election mess. I went to the TV to turn it up. The remote had disappeared months ago. Hello, Susan? Yeah, this is Jake. No, Jake. I'm Mike's roommate? Yeah, uh, you know that catalog he gave you? Did you look through it yet? He waited. What? Really? When? When today? So you don't even glance through it? More waiting. No, I know. I've seen all the posters in your room. He sighed. Well, you remember where you threw it out? He put a hand to his face and grumbled. Which burger shack? The one on Main Street? He sighed. No, yeah, okay. Thanks, anyway. Huh? Because I think my paycheck was in it. Yeah, well, I'll find it. Thanks. He dropped the phone and scowled at me. I smiled back. I guess I get to root around in the Burger Shack dumpster now, he said. He grabbed his keys and traipsed toward the door. Have fun, I said with a grin. He slammed the door behind him, started up his truck, and drove off in a huff. I got up to turn off the TV. As I glanced behind the set, I noticed a thin white envelope on the ground. I reached over and picked it up. I looked at the phone and thought about calling the Main Street Burger Shack. Then I saw Nino scowling at the tissue in her water bowl and let the envelope fall back to the ground. The end. So that, like I say, that came together very well for me. And I was very happy with that. And then one time when I had it up there, uh, and the next semester, you know, two years from then, I don't remember how long it was. It was several years. I, I put it up there again. It was writing a story about people digging through the trash. And I realized that I hadn't, ever done a version of that where they're in like a like a like a like a dump like real disgusting trash so i just started writing that and uh it turned into lost track and uh it's it's about lots of things relationships and you know the epigraph is from confucius and it says to entire entire sincerity there belongs ceaselessness yeah so whatever it's about a lot of things but it's also about electronic music and there's this song I just love called Voodoo People by uh, Chemical uh, by Prodigy, but it's remixed by the Chemical Brothers. And it has everything to do with this. Uh, you know, ooh, ooh, I should turn it on. I'll put it in the background so that you can hear it while I'm describing this scene, which has the song playing on it. Rock the house and... Okay, so that's the very start of the song, and that's relevant because they're at this party, and the DJ is playing a variety of different songs that they mostly enjoy. And then... And they're also looking for this song that... Um, they, they don't know the name of it. They don't know who it's by. It used to be on the CD, but that's why they had to find the CD because they're in the, they in the dump to find the CD. So whatever, they're looking for the song and they, while they're and they're dancing, they're having fun at this party and they're hoping that maybe they've basically, hopefully they've forgotten about the song by this point, spoilers, but whatever. Uh, so they're at this party and the DJ is playing various songs, and he keeps mixing in that first little bit of this uh, Chemical Brothers Prodigy remix. Rock the house and 
drop the house in. He keeps dropping that into the mix here and there. And at first, one of the main characters, uh, I guess it's the first person person, uh, she thinks he's playing it. Uh, so on page 150, her friend, uh, what's her friend's name? Serena. Yeah, that's her name. Sorry. So uh, you don't know the names of your own characters? I don't. Anyway, they're at this party and they're dancing. And, and at one point, Serena says, you thought this was voodoo people. And the other person's like, I totally did. He'll play it next. Watch. And she's like, probably. And uh, and she's trying to get her friend Serena to go talk to this DJ because Serena just got out of a relationship and the guy was a scumbag. And he was the one who gave them a mix with that song on it. And that's part of the reason they're being driven crazy. So anyway, the DJ, she thinks the DJ's cute. And so the first person narrator is trying to get Serena to go talk to the DJ. So whatever. All that stuff's going on. And then... Then the, the DJ, house. so they're they're outside and they are uh, her friends chewing tobacco for some reason. I won't get into that, but she. So they're outside talking and they're the party's in the background at this point. And then, as I'll read, the song "Voodoo People" comes on in the middle of it. Uh, she reached in her mouth and pulled out the slimy glob of tobacco and flung it toward me. I stepped out of the way just as voodoo people came on for real. Is this too loud? Should I drop it? You gotta hear it, bro. Just listen to this for now and I'll come back. All right, so I'm fading it out because that song is so incredible. I love it so much. And that moment of when that beat first drops is exactly what's being described here. So, okay, she pulls out the glob of tobacco and flung it at me. I stepped out of the way just as voodoo people came on for real. I dropped my cup and water spilled everywhere, and I jogged to the floor in between the stupid people who didn't realize what they were hearing, and then there was nothing but me and the tinny beat and the whirling synths, and that bass line swarmed in, and then the drums started pounding, and it was everything. And I was lost in the oblivion of the beat, and I kept moving and feeling it, and it was awesome. And three minutes later, I looked up, and there was Serena, just as lost as me, and I almost cried because it was such a perfect moment. And we kept dancing and smiling, and then something else came into the song that I didn't recognize, and I stopped moving because I realized that I did recognize it. And then I actually did start crying a little bit because Serena stopped, and she looked at me too, and her eyes widened, and I knew that she knew, and then she turned and walked straight for the DJ, and I followed her. So, again, this song that I love so much is I, I just wanted to see if I could recreate the sensation of being at a party and hearing a song that you really love uh, make an appearance and the ecstasy of that moment and just really getting into it, especially if there's someone that you know loves the song as well. And, uh, yeah, it's just an awesome song. <laughs> Alright, so you get the idea. It's such a beautiful song. Okay, let me just say a few more things about some of the other stories here. Um, I, I have no idea if this makes sense or not. I mean, whatever. I assume people won't listen if they're not interested, so whatever. Um, okay, Respawn is about video games and language, and uh, it's, it's the first time I did this thing. Um, okay, as a teacher, I can't write bad words. 
it's just not considered okay. We're in a really uncertain time in terms of what's okay for teachers to do because Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and Snapchat and, and all the other social media revolutions, as well as just the general ease of finding out what people are up to, has made things more complicated for teachers. There have been teachers fired for being in adult films and, and um, engaging in lascivious behavior in some sort of public official capacity. Um, and, and that's a little uncertain. Uh, one of my most, um, one of the situations I think is most interesting from this point of view is there's a, I can never remember what state it is. It's the state of New England, the, the Supreme Court, this guy took his school district to the Supreme Court because he said that they, they were infringing on his First Amendment rights. And the school district said he was a bad teacher. He was under a probationary schedule where we don't have to give a reason why we didn't rehire him. So the burden of proof was totally on this guy, and he came up with all these, it was MySpace, and it was all this stuff about why what he wrote on MySpace was too much for the man, and the man couldn't handle it, and he's being punished for speaking out against the Gulf War. Um, the the defense, the, the school district said, well, actually it has a lot more to do with these posts about you showering with students and stuff not photos of it but like descriptions of it and it was probably meant to be joking because there's all this actual like they had it in the supreme court of the state the jk's and the lol's and all that and in order for the justices to understand the details of this case they had to include at the beginning and i'm sure this was a research report drawn up by someone who just giggled his head off the whole time or her um how myspace works so at the beginning of this ruling, there's this like two-page description of MySpace users create lists of quote-unquote friends that they can then quote-unquote add. So the teacher had added a bunch of students while they were still his students, and it all became very weird. So whatever, he was like, no, it's the political speech. And so the Supreme Court said, okay, let's look at this so-called political speech. And they actually reprinted one of his poems in the ruling. And it's the most god-awful thing you've ever read in your life. It was, the sand is hot, but the man is not. It was just so insipid and horrible. And the justice who wrote the main decision said, even if we can consider this type of poetastery uh, to be art, it still doesn't you know, require the school district to explain why they're firing him, et cetera, et cetera. So he lost. And um, it's just hilarious that they went so far out of their way to say, your poetry sucks, dude. So anyway, the point is that that decision is one example of school districts disapproving of... I mean, there's nothing really on the MySpace... He did things that were not cool, I would never do, and that no teacher should ever do. But they, don't, they didn't really get into the domain of, you know, horribly immoral... They're, 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 but they're certainly leading somewhere horribly immoral. And it's a good thing this dude got caught, fired, whatever, when that happened, because who knows what would have happened if he had continued that stupid, stupid stuff. Just getting too close to students. It's really stupid. So, because it usually almost always leads somewhere bad. And so you just don't do it. You got to build a wall around yourself as a teacher. Now, I tell the students once you graduate, you know, dude, I'll add you on Facebook or whatever. I mean, I'm still not like inviting you into my home. We're not going to drink milkshakes and hang out every weekend. But I think this guy who had gone to the Supreme Court was one of those who went to teaching, as the guy says in election. Uh, he went into teaching because he uh, never wanted to leave high school. So I think that's probably what happened with this dude. Anyway, whatever. 
my point is that th there's a lot of confusion about what teachers can and can't do. And so when I wrote this story respawn, it had to have curse words. There's no way for this story to not have curse words. And that's a really tough situation for me to be in because some, most of the time you can finagle around the need of, for curse words. Care services, for instance, is about, you know, people in private defense contractors, they're in war zones, but they don't curse. And, and, and that's, it's, it's not that I think maybe I wrote, he cursed and spat or whatever it is. I, I'm not denying the fact that they curse. I'm trying to make the story um, excessive gratuity is not the point of the story, and I, I don't want it to even be an issue, so I try to find ways around it. I believe there is a third way to sort of be authentic with your storytelling. Tell the truth, but not have to replicate the actual words, because I don't want to get in trouble for writing filth, you know, whatever. And it's not, it's ne but here's the point. In Respawn, it's necessary. You've got to have, it's about, you know, 15-year-old kids, and they're playing video games online. How are you supposed to do that without cursing? It doesn't have, show me a 15-year-old kid who plays video games online. I will show you a 15-year-old kid who curses, okay? A 15-year-old person, I shouldn't say kid. Um, but whatever. So, the, but the point, you know, I, I couldn't, so I couldn't avoid cursing. So I thought, okay, I'll tell you what. Instead of making it like, oh, you know, fudge you, I, I, I said, I'll write it out, and then I'll black it out. It's redacted, like, like a government document, you know, like a CIA file that they've released to the media. But I think that works because part of what I'm trying to point out is the fact that it's, you know, not okay. Even though clearly the bad words are necessary here, it's not okay for me to publish them. Uh, I'm trying to call attention to that as a way to sort of protest, I suppose. But the other thing is that, and this is important, there are certain words that don't get censored. And when, which words get censored and why um, is important. I, that's not accidental. It's not sort of off the cuff. I did that for very specific reasons. And hopefully when you read Respawn, if you haven't already read it or you're reading it for the second time, uh, maybe, hopefully, I, I'd be interested in, in having a chat about that because I want to know how well it worked to make that sort of thing intentional. And so, I mean, I want to talk about all this stuff. If you have anything to say about it, positive or negative, I, I, I want honest feedback is what I really want more than anything. I mean, I'd like to hear people liked it, but don't refrain, please, whoever hears this, do not refrain from telling me the truth about what you think about my writing because it's very important to me, not only to get praise for it, because I believe it's good, but I want to know how I can make it better or what didn't work for you or what didn't click or what didn't sound right or whatever. Anything you want to say about it, please, please let me know. The number one thing I hate is getting no feedback. I'd much rather get, I didn't like it, I thought it was stupid. I'd much rather hear that than hear nothing. So whatever, write me an email. Oh, and some people are like holding up their copy of the book and taking photographs of that. So if you want to do that, I'm going to make a gallery on the Justified TextWorks website of people holding up their book. Now, most of them are just holding the book and we don't see any background or any, I mean, whatever. I think Bongo the Sane sent me one with some background. I don't really care either way. I think it's amusing when you hold it up in front of what you're eating at the moment or, you know, whatever, outside the front of your house or if you don't do that, a local, you know, seeing a sightseeing point in your town, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Just send a picture of you holding the book, or not. Who cares, as Jen Kirkman says. All right, uh, let me talk about agoraphobia and then the ZZX, because that's the most recent one I wrote. So uh, maybe I'll read one or two out of the fiction journal. Oh, I will. I'll read the Fallout fan fiction. Um, <clears throat> okay, agoraphobia. Started out as, um, I put a journal topic up on the board that said, write a story about someone breaking out of prison. Okay, well... I don't really know how many different ways there are to do that. There's probably a bunch of different ways. You could probably do a bunch, but it's it would be really hard to make one that's realistic and authentic and also creative and weird or different. So it was tough. I started thinking, I, oh, I want to make something different, right? I wasn't, I wasn't just writing just for the sake of writing. I came up with this idea, and the idea was, okay, 
What about someone breaking into prison? And then I realized, okay, well, there are certain ways that would have to be done, and there are certain consequences as a result. That's how it started. It turned into this... I put it first in the story because it's the one I've gotten the most feedback on by far, and it's the one, in many ways, I'm proudest of in the whole collection. Because... Um, my awesome teacher colleague, uh, Deidre Jarecki Rohr, said uh, in an email, which is how I have it in print, <laughs> she said, quote, as soon as I finished Agoraphobia, I wanted to read it again. Now, I'm pretty sure her email said, I didn't, but I wanted to. And for some reason, I love that part of it, but because I couldn't find the email, I, I wasn't sure that's what she had written. Uh, so I couldn't, you know, I didn't feel comfortable using the whole quote, but whatever. And if that's wrong, I mean, I think it just means that she was busy because that's what every teacher is always. And I'm amazed when anybody reads anything I give them because I figure, how do you have time for that? But she she really liked it. And she and, and so anyway, whatever. Um, it I hear that a lot. That's the number one comment I get about agoraphobia. I hope people like it. And that's why. I mean, nobody says, as soon as I read it, I had to read it again. Or uh, it was, I felt like I had missed so much and I wanted to read it, you know, I needed to read it again. It, it's Instead, it's, I want to read it again. I'm looking forward to it or, I, I you know, I'm going to read that one again soon. Because I did not intend for it to be, you know, it. it I, I, this is an egotistical thing to say, but I'm going to say it. I, I, it feels kind of like Usual Suspects in the sense of, and it wasn't by design. It just sort of happened that way, where I wanted to, screw around a little bit. As I was writing it, I realized that it was, it was, it was a lot of fun to screw with the reader and to, you know, it jumps around in time, but that's nothing new. The point is that it's, it's got some spoilers and it's got some fun stuff. And I think it, hopefully it'll be fun to read it a second time. It's always fun for me to read it. I think it's an interesting story. I was very happy with the way it turned out in terms of the, the characters. Uh, again, the Duchess is, is a absolutely glorious help with all of this because the first draft I wrote the first person sections sometimes switch between Laura and Maria. So she was really confused at the end of it. And so I, I said, you know, well, what are you confused about? And so she, you know, we talked about it and it was clear that the jumping, the switching of the first person in the, the first person sections between the two characters was just pointless. There was no reason to do it. It didn't add anything. And the story is already confusing. That's the thing. I didn't need to add that in order to be confusing. So I took it out, and I think it made the story a lot better, and I'm so grateful that the Duchess said, you know, I don't get this, because it caused me to realize, you know, there's this moment where you have to step outside. What's it like for other people? And you don't want to just, you know, I tell my students, it's like, you know, the more dots you have, easier it is to connect the dots, right? But if you put down too many dots, you've already drawn the line. There's nothing for the reader to do. So in a way, I, like I say, I like screwing with the reader, but I, I wanted to make it, you know, my, one of my favorite movies in the world is Primer because there's just barely enough to kind of figure out what's going on. Just barely to get a, a, any kind of sense on the story. And so a story like Donnie Darko, for instance, I feel differently about it. I feel like it's supposed to be just, you know, impossible to decipher in any meaningful way, shape, or form. And I kind of feel that way about... Um, Inception and Memento as well. The point in both of those movies is it doesn't really matter. And I hate that. I, I think things do matter. And I want to tell stories that, that matter. So, um, I shouldn't say that it, it, those stories, it doesn't matter. I should say that in Inception and Memento, the significance is not on the reality of the situation or whatever. Um, so, whatever. Okay. Um, so anyway, yeah, Gorephobia, uh, there's, again, there's some references to video games in here, and hopefully those of you who play them, and I know a lot of the people who listen to this do, uh, I hope you'll appreciate those, but there's other references as well. I had a friend who, a friend, 
uh, a, a father of one of my students. He is a friend. All parents of students are my friends. Um, he, uh, he, he was in class when we were going through this and, and, you know, it was, it's in a creative writing class. I'm sort of showing them, here's how I do it. Right. And, and this is, I think the best thing I've ever written. So hopefully it will be useful to you to, you know, you know, to, to pay attention to it for technique. Now that's again, an egotistical thing to do. I know, look how great a writer I am, but I, I do believe, you know, I think it's valuable for them to talk to writers. So I'm a writer. Here, read something I've written. Now, that also brings us to this sucks, but we'll get to that in a second. So, um, he was, so the father of the student was in the class when we were going through agoraphobia, and at one point, the guard uh, has a nickname for this lady who talks to herself. He calls her Sybil. And now, students never get that. I never hear any laughing from the students when that line comes out, but he laughed at it. And then at the end of class, he said, I appreciated the Sybil reference. And I was like, yes, somebody got that. That's very cool. It's always cool to me when people get references that I drop in. There's a bunch in um, Lost Track. There's references to De La Soul and lots of other things. So if you get any of those references, people, I'd love to hear it because it does make me happy. And you know, nobody ever says that. I worry that people think that, oh, he made a reference. He's probably heard a million times that someone got that. But I don't care. I don't. First of all, I never hear that sort of thing. Once in a while, a student will say, hey, that's from Usual Suspects or whatever. I've got Usual Suspects on the mind. All right. And then finally, there's ZZN. And it, I call it that, Ray, I describe it as that because you'll see when you read the story. <laughs> Basically, the only thing to say about why it's called, why I call it ZZN is if you read the story. So, um, yeah, I wanted to tell a love story. I had written one earlier called Elusive. It's decent, but it's, I like the format especially. I should write another story in that same format because this format is not exclusive to the content but that's that story is about love and relationships and gets into some adult themes so i don't feel like it's valuable for me to you know put it out there in the world but the the concept of writing a decent love story is a really scary challenge for me as a writer it's a scary challenge for anybody who wants to represent the world as it is without giving in to sentimentality and syrupiness the way that so many love stories do. Not just romance novels, but but other love stories, you know. The love story in The Matrix is cheesy and syrupy as hell. I'm sorry. It's just a bad love story. It's not an impressive love story. There's nothing really genuine and authentic and, and all ugh, the love story in The Matrix is not good. Um, when I think of a good love story, I think of Shadowlands. I think that's a beautiful love story. It's the story of C.S. Lewis falling in love with an American woman. And it's so... It's jagged, it's uncomfortable, but it's supposed to be. But ultimately, it says, you know, the, the tagline, the whole sort of quote, it's from C.S. Lewis, I believe, is, the, the happiness now is for the pain then. And he says it when they're first going out. And he says it when she, after she's gone, the happiness now is for the pain then. You cannot have one or the other. And I think especially with marriage, and I've been in it for, you know, six years, it's, it's a fantastic institution for me. My marriage to the Duchess is brought me levels of happiness and contentment I never suspected I would experience. And... It puzzles me why something that is so wonderful and awesome for me should be so um, derided in popular media. So many writers make love into something that's just this ridiculous 
hot air balloon. It's just full of hot air. And I haven't read Nicholas Sparks, so maybe it's not fair for me to comment on him. But he's the one I'm thinking of right now. Twilight is such a ludicrous love story. It is this, it, it's just a bad love story. Forget every other part of it. That love story is just not a good story. Um, so I thought, but I, but but a lot of my students, especially female students, I'm not trying to be you know, stereotypical, but the guys tend to enjoy reading books about war and stuff blowing up, and the ladies tend to prefer love stories. Now it's not an all way thing. Lots of students, I have a lot of female students who are into Watchmen and you know whatever it is, but there are also a lot of females who like love stories. So I thought, okay, how would I write a realistic, authentic, heartfelt love story? that avoids the extremes of love is horrible, marriage sucks, ball and chain, blah, 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 or the syrupy, over-the-top, ludicrous, badly constructed love story of the standard fare. <laughs> well, ZZN is the result. And I pulled, a, I incorporated a lot of things from my relationship with the Duchess into this story. So I feel like in a way I've sort of put a lot of us sort of out there. Um, and the Duchess said, you know, she, she felt a little weird being a character in a story. And I can imagine that would be. I don't think anybody's ever written me into a story. That's not true. In high school, we did this thing at the end of the year in the journalism class where students, um, you know, wrote about each other as fictional characters in the future. So, but whatever. I like, and, and I appreciate her willingness to um, to be that, character because it's not all her i mean obviously she's not a british woman of indian descent but she is awesome in the way that vandana and the story is awesome everything awesome about her about vandana um mo- many of the awesome things in this character are are what are awesome about the duchess and i um, and about her, you know, just the fact that she's funny and she's she can let things go when they need to be let go. And I, I just like spending time with her. And I'm not going to spend this whole thing gushing about how much I love my wife, but I need to make clear that I drew from my life because I think it's a wonderful thing that 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 is often disturbed by the little hater. And I need to thank Jay Smooth from IllDoctrine.com for the phrase the little hater because he made a video about the little hater. He's made several actually about him. And I just think that phrase is so apt and it describes that voice in your head, which is also the ego, which says you're going to screw this up. Everything's negative. That negative, negative perspective on everything. It's, and, and it's especially prevalent, I think, among people on the left of the political spectrum because we refuse to look away from the negative stuff that's going on, the horrible consequences of public policy, international relations, whatever, economic policy. But the danger is that you're going to let that overtake you into every part of your life, and it will destroy your hope for a better tomorrow, and it will convince you that you're not good enough, and it will point out, the little hitter will point out all the flaws in all the people around you, and it will focus entirely on those flaws. And as a result, there's a feedback loop there. It will make you think that you're never good enough because they have all these flaws. Think about how many of your flaws they see and focus on. And of course, everybody else probably has that same voice saying, 
ah, that person has all those flaws. Think about how many of your flaws. Everybody's spinning themselves into this cycle of negativity. And the media only feeds it. All the media. The news feeds it. Uh, comedians feed it. Movies feed it. We're always fed this notion that you know, we're in a toxic intellectual environment right now. We really are. And it breeds the little hater. The little hater lives on that stuff. All the, and I'm thinking of unsubscribing from cringe and cringe pics because it's like celebrating the worst that people do. And there's a lot of stuff on Reddit that celebrates the best of what people do, but that tends to be, again, that syrupy, eh, you know, oh, isn't this the most wonderful thing ever? And this is the cutest animal in the world. And it is, but, but that's all it is, right? And, and so you try to balance it out. And that's what ZZN is all about, is that balance, about looking at things from different perspectives, about trying to get rid of the little hater, and uh, ma- making, deciding to make the relationship work. That's, the, that's, the, that's one of the big points of this story, is that the guy realizes that he has to change something. And um, whatever, I feel like I'm overdoing it, but I'm really happy with the ZZN turned out. And... Um, yeah, I hope you like it. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Re- read the whole thing. <laughs> That's all I will say about that. All right, let me read some stuff in the Fiction Journal because there's some stuff in here that I really I think is a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of gratitude stuff at the end as well. If you're hearing these words, there's a good chance you're in the gratitude section in some way, shape, or form because I, I have a lot of people to thank f- for this. And um, yeah, so whatever. Um, the fiction journal is dedicated to my students, past, present, and future. I read you the envelope. Um, Susie the Slug's really short. It's two paragraphs. Susie the Slug slithered slowly southward. Sad, she stopped to speculate on the sorry state of her sister Stephanie. Steph's staph infection had suddenly supersized itself on Saturday. By Sunday, the sundry smells and scary symptoms of her sorrowful sickness had swelled and stood out like spots on a sunflower. Susie's son Simon, standing at Steph's side, silently slipped her a sedative. He saw a spot for sly scavenging and struck. As Steph sank into sleep, he swiped her sack of sawbucks and split. He scurried swiftly to Switzerland and spent September sipping scotch and soda at the end. The first sentence is the prompt here. I tell the kids they can continue with mostly S words, but not the S word, or switch to a different letter with every sentence, or just abandon the whole um, alliteration thing altogether. Uh, whatever. That's uh, silly. This is fun, but not Rorschach's journal. I will read Rorschach's journal because it's one of those that really demands to be read aloud. But I need to take a drink of water first. October sixth. Continued discomfort in the throat today. Illiterate trust fund hippie who calls himself my doctor urged me again to give up my three-pack-a-day unfiltered smoking regimen. I coughed up a thick wad of blood and tar, then grimaced at him and said, Fine like this. He asked if I might at least remove my face so he could check my nose and ears for infection. When I refused, he offered me a lollipop as a bribe. Intrigued, I asked, What flavor? Grape, he said. I just laughed. Then I told him, I didn't make an appointment to come and see you. You had an appointment to see me. He lunged for me, trying to peel off my face. He said it was for my own good. I jabbed him in the eye with a tongue depressor and escaped through the third-story window. Never compromise. Never surrender. October 7th. Swine flu continues to assault my throat lining, causing me to talk like hideous demon child. Had to repeat my order to the sniveling rodent at the Burger Shack drive-thru four times. As I waited for my food, I watched a half-dead cockroach flail around uselessly in the gutter, its legs pinned by a bloody mass of garbage and filth. Then the wretched acne-scarred idiot at the window handed me a disgusting paper bag filled with greasy food that will clog my arteries and fill my abdomen with parasitic 
pathetic botulism. As he flashed his dead smile through yellowed teeth of pathetic regret, he asked me if I wanted any ketchup packets, and I looked down at him from the window of my truck and whispered, No. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Most fan fiction is tedious and dreadful. It usually requires an obsessive knowledge of the original text or texts, and then its quality is sadly lacking in comparison. When I first came up with this prompt, however, write an entry or two in the diary or journal of a fictional character, I couldn't resist a nod to Watchmen. Reading it with the proper voice in class can be rough, because I have to do it five times a day, depending on which classes are which. It's fun to hear students familiar with the original catch on. I will read the New Vegas uh, fan fiction as well because I'm playing New Vegas again. It was just on Steam. If anybody has just gone back to the Mojave, hopefully this will be joyous for you. I put the first two sentences up on the day Fallout New Vegas came out. I found Bashira, heard the character's name, on an internet list of baby names. It's Swahili, meaning predictor of good news. So, yeah, uh, the, so this is the start of the story I put on the board when Fallout New Vegas first came out. I was so excited for it. Bashira tilted her hat back and gazed at the valley below. So, this is New Vegas, she said. Fiery shards of setting sun raked the decimated landscape, rusted signs draped askew on bent poles. She felt the longing of shadows and wondered what might lurk behind the rotting automobile carcasses on the highway. Suddenly a slug of metal pain shot through her brain as a noisy grunting pounded her ears. There you are! The guttural voice bellowed as she collapsed to the ground. She whirled just in time to see some freakish bulging mass of muscle raise his iron club again, screaming painfully. But Shira rolled to the right and pulled the shotgun off her back, pointed it at the monster's grotesque leg, and blasted. It shrieked a blood-curdling roar. And Bashira jumped to her feet. Stand still, the creature wailed. I'm hungry! But Bashira did not stand still. She dashed around to the monster's left side and leveled the shotgun again, then pulled the trigger and felt her heart freeze when she heard the click. No, she gasped. No, 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 not right now. She chucked the broken weapon to the rocky ground and turned to run, but the beast was upon her and smashed her with the club, breaking her arm. Found you, he screamed, and advanced again, swinging the huge metal bar until a shot cracked the desert air, and the mutant howled and gurgled and collapsed beside her. Bashira looked up from her cringing fetal position and saw a tall man in a dirty Vault 101 jumpsuit crest the hill to the west. You're lucky I had some vats energy left, he said, offering his hand. She smiled and let him help her to her feet. That arm looks bad, he said. Let's get you to Red over in Big Town. I don't have any caps, Bashira said. Oh, that's okay, the man said. She owes me a favor. And the nerds start going, Big Town, Washington, D.C., nobody cares. Um, the Heart of Air Gwendolyn, today was a good day for Chang. I like that story, but I'm not going to read it. It's a little longer. Uh, this is a good one. I'll read this real quick. The Tapioca Canyon. I know we're going into like seven years here on this podcast, but bear with me. The Grand Canyon was filled with tapioca pudding. I walked to the edge, not with the trepidation I'd had the day before when there had been no pudding, but only a terrifying precipice. I gazed down into the river of beige dessert food and then at my wife. Look, Sharon, I said, the Grand Canyon is filled with tapioca pudding. She gave me an annoyed look. I can see that, she said. Where did it come from? I shrugged. We heard the zipper of the tent open, and our son Malcolm emerged, yawning. Look, Malcolm, I said, the Grand Canyon is filled with tapioca pudding. He ran to join us. Wow, he said. Can I go swimming, Mom? I don't know, she said, and looked from the canyon to me. Do you think it's safe? I shrugged. All I know is the Grand Canyon is filled with tapioca pudding. Sharon sighed. I guess it can't hurt, she said. As Malcolm ran to change into his swimsuit, a National Park Service truck pulled up. 
A tall man in a brown uniform stepped out. What's all this then? he asked. I pointed into the goop. The Grand Canyon is filled with tapioca pudding, I said. Sharon scowled at me. You just like saying that, she said. I grinned. Well, what should I say? You must admit it's an amusing sentence. And after all, the Grand Canyon is, is filled with tapioca pudding. It's a sentence you certainly don't hear every day, she said. But imagine if you did, the park ranger said. The next morning, the front page of the New York Times read, Aliens invade Europe! Paris destroyed! Millions dead! I'm not sure why the park ranger is British. I think I had a student who loved Monty Python, so I threw it in. Maybe the ranger isn't actually British. Maybe he just loves Monty Python, too. When I finally had a student who asked what tapioca is, I realized I didn't actually know, so I had to look it up. It comes from the cassava plant. My teeth is fun. Uh, in the dumpster. Oh, Baggy and Patty. I like that. I'll read that because it's fun. Hey, if you're bored, hey, switch off. Deal with it. <laughs> Hey, 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 hey! You're dripping mustard on me, you bacon cheddar freak! Baggy the bag of fries wiped the yellow goo from his side and scowled. Goodness, Patty the hamburger said. Patty, hamburger, it's actually, she's, she's Patty the cheeseburger said. I apologize profusely. Allow me to assist you. She moved toward him. Get away from me, Baggy snapped. You got all kinds of pickles and ketchup on you. I don't want none of that crap on me. Patty gave him a disapproving look. I do wish you could choose less vulgar ways to express yourself, she said. It's your crude appearance that got us into this debacle in the first place. Shove it, Baggy said, or I'll give you something to debacle about. He shook an angry fist. Patty giggled. Baggy scowled. What are you laughing at? Shut the bun up! Well, it's quite clear that you're totally unfamiliar with the term debacle, as evidenced by your wholly incoherent use of that word. Oh, yeah? How about the word shut up? Baggy growled. Am I using that word right? As in shut your face in an upward direction? No, Patty said. No what? Right is an adjective, so it doesn't work there. You need to ask, am I using that properly? Or use some other adverb. Ah, bite me, Baggy said. Don't mind if I do, said Fred the homeless guy, snatching up both Baggy and Patty and skipping merrily down the street. The end. Get it, Patty the cheeseburger? Uh, I hope that shut the bun up would become the new cool thing to say around school, but so far it hasn't caught on. Evil Shoes Weekly Arm. I published Weekly Arm in an issue of Down I did a while ago. I think I called it uh, the Daily Arm. Eh, whatever. Um, the New Year's Eve one. The Secret. Giant Talking Lizard Bird. Uh, flapping. It's this guy, and he's flapping his arms, and he goes, yes. Uh, Killer Mutant Survival God. Man, that's going to be some of my students eventually. The Freezer is fun. Noonan Beach, uh, that's depressing. Uh, these two stories, Three Days and Noonan Beach, are basically describing what it's like in my head some of the time when I'm teaching. Uh, so if you want a glimpse into the void, man, just be careful. The void stares back. Uh, the Style Kit, Narrative Stream Sense, <laughs> Algebron. Uh, I'm just going to name them all out. Turkey Hat, that's based on a true hat. Happy Time. Ms. McCratz and Vimmer, <laughs> Maniac from Vegetable Hill. That's a good one you should read several times. Uh, all right, let me just do the This Sucks, and then I'll, I'll leave it here. Um, this isn't from the Fiction Journal. I had the idea when I was driving into work one day. And it's the first piece of fiction that I ever showed to my students. So in order to get honest feedback from them about it, I tell them it's by a different, you know, a different writer, a famous writer named Jeanette Thompson. So, and I do this with my friends when I show them this for the first time. Um, I say, here's a story by Jeanette Thompson. It's so good. You should totally read it. And let me know what you think. And then we can talk about it. We try to figure it out. It's like a puzzle. Because it is like a puzzle. And I'm not going to help you with figuring it out. But um, I love telling it's, it's by Jeanette Thompson. Because then when they realize who Jeanette Thompson is, they're like, oh, you jerk. Anyway, 
Uh, so here's the story. Tony shoved Mike aside and said, I'm fine, Mike sighed. No, you're not, he said. Give him up. He held out his hand, but Tony just grinned like an idiot. A stupid gap-toothed cretin. He lunged past Mike and fumbled into the lock. From behind them, someone shouted, Hey! It was Jen. What's going on? Tony closed his eyes and let out a long, angry breath. He looked toward her and then quickly away. He threw the keys on the ground and stormed back toward the house. Fine, he said. Whatever. Part 2. Susan balled up her napkin with the hamburger wrapper. I don't effing care, she said, drawing her soda. We're her freaking friends. You do not do that to your friends. Karen fidgeted. But if she had told everyone, it wouldn't have worked. No, Susan snapped. She jabbed a finger toward Karen. She made it very clear who her real friends are. And we didn't make the list. She sat back. You want to hang out with her? Go ahead. As far as I'm concerned, it actually happened. She crossed her arms and drew soda. I'm done. Part 3. Dave dropped the phone. It clattered on the hardwood floor. After a few seconds, Mike's voice came through. Dave, he said, you there? Dave was staring at the fireplace. He was in the family room. He looked down at his red bracelet, then at the phone. Dave, Mike said in a tinny, faraway squawk. Dave, what happened? Zombie style, Dave picked it up. I'm here, he said. His voice was thin and insubstantial, watery. Yeah, I know, right? Mike said. They only told a few people. Who? Angela, Mary, Rachel, Ronnie, Steve. Dave blinked. He couldn't think of anything else to do. So they were all acting? Yep. And her parents? Mr. Kaiser? He scowled. The freaking cops? Yeah, all the way down. I cannot freaking believe this, Dave said. Mike sighed. Believe it, he said. Mike leaned back in his chair. This sucks, he announced to no one in particular. This is part four, by the way. Mike leaned back in his chair. This sucks, he announced to no one in particular. Why do we have to have homeroom today? Susan smiled and worked through another geometry problem. Yeah, really, she said. Ms. Lopez let out a slow breath. I need your attention, everyone. She waited a second. Susan, please put the math down for a minute. Susan rolled her eyes and shut the book. Hesitantly, she looked at Ms. Lopez. Now, today's homeroom is for everyone in the school, but I know you two are friends with Jen. Susan looked at Mike quickly, and then away just as quickly. The last two weeks had been a blur. She fingered her red wristband. Yeah, she said quietly. What about her? From out in the hall, a shriek slammed into the door. Susan looked up at Mike, but she was just as confused. He was just as confused as she. Ms. Kinley stepped aside from the problem on the board. Okay, she said to the room full of comatose eyes. This is part five. Uh, half of the students were still asleep. First hour on Mondays were the worst. First thing we want to do, she said, is cancel out the like terms. She began slashing through letters and numbers on both sides of the equation. Susan yawned and did the same on her paper. The door opened quickly. Karen ran in. Her eyes were puffy and red. She darted for Susan. Susan sat bolt upright. What? Karen's hands shook. Jen's dead, she said. It was a drunk driver. All right, that's enough for that. Thank you very much for listening, people. Um, I, we'll get, we'll probably the next show will be a, a back to the normal show. I have things to talk, tell you about Elizabeth Warren and economic stuff and education and lots of other stuff. So stay tuned for future episodes. Uh, no hip hop this week. No quote of the week. Um, show notes and eh, that's not even true. My website. Uh, get go to just-text.org and you can check out. The new website, it's got some reflections on the process of publishing this book and other stuff you can read. And uh, I think a lot of the, I don't know if I still have the music links for the stuff in um, Lost Track. Probably not, but I should put those back up because there's some good stuff you should hear. Um, anyway, my website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, F-B-E-S-P dot org, which I also just redesigned. It's 
it's not that exciting, but you know, it's slimmed down. And I think the effect I did on it was pretty cool. So you could check out fbesp.org if you want to see the new design on that. Links to music and fiction and multimedia and other stuff I've made. Um, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a busy man. Deal Listen, with I it. don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you very much for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions, esp at fbesp.org or tweet me at dukescath. I forgot to say you can order the book through IndieBound. There's a link on my website. There's links everywhere. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you've probably seen me posting the link a hundred times already. I apologize for the spam, but I'm trying to get this thing out there. I'm not really making a lot of money on this. It's just about getting the book out there and letting people read it and sharing the stories with folks. And I really hope that you'll help me with that because I don't, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to get reviewed anywhere. I, I can't afford to really advertise. I mean, I'm doing a public event in Madison, but, and that's on, I should promo that. Like I'm the worst person at like promoting myself. I'll do a thing and then I'll just leave it and I'll be like, oh, people maybe find it. Um, no. Okay. So in Madison, Wisconsin, on Friday, the 16th of August at 6 p.m. at Room 1 Zone Bookstore, um, I'll be doing a public reading, and it'll be awesome. It'll probably be a lot like this podcast. So if you just listen to this, I don't know why you'd go, uh, but whatever. It, and, you know, I'll have Q&A, and I'll, I, I don't know, just, you know, work with it. We'll just get rid of it, you know, take care of things and dance. Uh, that was a Greg Proops reference he was talking about at the... Something I think someone asked him like, "Are you are you amazed that Barack Obama got elected?" He's like, "Yeah, Barack Obama's a you know corporate financed uh, law lawyer, and you know he's uh, I'll be impressed. I don't know if he said exactly the transgendered Filipino lesbian is uh, made president. <laughs> Come on, everybody, let's just dance. Uh, whatever. That's his impression. I'm I'm if you think it's racist, it's not me. It's Greg Proops is being racist, but you're being racist by repeating him. I'm not. I don't think it's a racist joke." whatever um okay so that's it thank you for listening people <laughs> you can buy the book on the website justashtext.org i will stop talking now Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. I believe that is what Bill Hicks once referred to as digging a comedy hole. And, uh, yeah.